Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, how good it is to be brought up into your presence through song. Our aim, our desire here in this place when we gather is that we would encounter you, know that we've had a life-transforming encounter with with you. We've entered your presence. Um, We have heard from you. We've received from you the bread that we need for today. We've learned to trust you, to delight in you, to rightly set our affections and priorities in order around you. Pray specifically today, Lord, that you would take us to the cross now. Help us to see and understand the great wonder and mystery that is the cross and how it calls us to a life of sacrifice. Make your word plain to us now, today. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you got your Bible, you can go to Philippians chapter 2. We will spend most of our time in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Well, as we have been going through this series on belonging the last couple of weeks, I mean, we've probably been making some statements that you find relatively obvious. They're kind of what we might call no-duh type statements, right? Uh, when I get up in the first week and I say, hey, you know, in order to have real true belonging, this kind of biblical understanding of community as a church, and in order to have that, you've got to be willing to be vulnerable. You probably didn't think that was all that profound, right? You went, yep, that makes sense. Got it. You got to be willing to be vulnerable, show what's really going on in my life, can't hide behind things. The more I hide, the less I'm able to have kind of the type of belonging that God talks about. And then when Dan did a good job of unpacking last week the idea of hospitality, that as a, as a church, what we want is to create spaces where people encounter Jesus, where they're, they're prepared to, uh, so that as people enter them, there's this sense in which they recognize like, This was well thought of, and the Spirit of God has been preparing this place so that I might encounter him. That probably was not a big surprise either as we talked about hospitality. By the way, those of you with the gift of hospitality, if that's like a spiritual gift that God has poured into your life, you need to know that you are vitally important. I feel like when I have conversations with people whose spiritual gift is hospitality, which is not often an upfront gift like teaching or leading, that they... they, sometimes think less of their gift. And I want you to know, as someone who does not possess the gift of hospitality, like if you came to my house and it was just me and not my awesome wife who does have that gift, that you'd be getting like meat with your hands. That would pretty much be what we would do, <laughs> right? And no one would, would encounter Jesus at all. It would just be like, all right, whatever, right? But, but if you have the gift of hospitality, you are so needed and necessary in the kingdom of God. I just wanna affirm that and say that. Have you ever been to a house where you just had that sense, like something is different in that place? Maybe you couldn't even identify what it is, but man, I've been in so many homes where I just know that place is a place of peace and joy and prayer and love in Christ. And when you walk into those spaces that have been prepared by people who think about hospitality so intentionally and to honor the Lord, that, that, that sets the table for God to do his work in such a profound way. And so we just want you to know that's incredibly valuable. But as we've talked about those things, and probably been relatively obvious statements, right? I mean, we're, we are after, as a church, as Dan said, wanting to create a sense of belonging where everyone who enters through these doors recognizes that there's a place for them here. There's a place for them at the table. There's a place where their voice can be heard. There's a place where, where you will be welcomed and loved and embraced. Now, we think that the, the fullest expression of belonging, of that kind of, that kind of um, knowing of one another, that kind of personal relationship happens in life groups. That's where we're always driving you towards those because in a big space, the best way to accomplish belonging is to drive you into smaller spaces. And so we're always doing that. Now, 
in that journey, let me add one more very obvious statement today uh, to our ideas around belonging, right? If the first two were obvious, this is going to be obvious as well, but it's this. True belonging cannot exist without sacrifice. True belonging cannot exist without sacrifice. Now let me tell you why we need to make these obvious statements, right? Because it's not that you don't know them, uh, but we need to be reminded of them because we're quick to forget. Would you agree with that? We are quick to forget the things that are true. And here's what happens when we forget. Here's what forgetting in the realm of belonging looks like. One of two things happens when you forget about the necessity of belonging, the necessity of community in your life, and, and of needing to pursue like a really significant version of that. One of two things happens. Either you begin to steer yourself towards isolation, right? And it, to use the metaphor, isolation is, is like cliffs that you run your ship aground on, right? It will break up your ship. It will tear you apart. Isolation is not meant for anybody. It's a dangerous place to be. Uh, many of you, and we, we ebb and flow, I think, in seasons of our life. There are seasons where, I mean, you've probably been in one like this, where you just think, I just want everyone to leave me alone, like, please, just stop bothering me. Stop pestering me. Stop trying to compel me to do something different or better. Stop trying to raise me up to think about higher things. I just want to be alone. Has anyone been there? He's like, just leave me alone. Yeah, absolutely. That's steering towards isolation, and it's a dangerous thing, right? When we forget about the necessity of belonging and how to pursue it, we tend to steer towards isolation. Or if we don't do that, the second thing that it might look like to forget about belonging is that we would just begin to settle for a very vanilla version of belonging. Now, forgive me if you like vanilla, okay? But not to disparage it, but it's no cookies and cream, let's be honest, all right? Right, so the thing that we want to encourage you in at the church is that we're not just looking to have you engage in relationships at a level where you kind of say, yeah, I, I know their face, and we say hi, and we kind of pass by each other in the hall, and we're friendly to each other, and you know, we're not like talking about each other behind each other's back. That seems like a win, that is a win, right? But we're talking about the kind, of, the kind of knowing of one another. We actually know what's going on in each other's lives. You are willing to let people in to, to speak into your life, that you actually care to do life alongside them. And rather than settling for some kind of vanilla, bland version that really just doesn't have much transformative power in our lives. I mean, we've all had acquaintance-type relationships, and they don't transform us. They're nice. They can be comforting at times. Uh, they're social. It gives us sort of gives us something to do. And those are fine. They're not bad. But they're not ultimately what we're aimed at because they're not transformative. What we're aiming at is transformation. That's why we need to remind ourselves again and again, what does belonging really look like? And that's why we spent time talking about how to engage in vulnerability, how to be hospitable as a church and as people, right? And today to talk about sacrifice. And again, it's an obvious statement, right? That you can't have, you can't have true belonging without sacrifice. So let's answer a couple questions today. First one is this, why can't belonging exist without sacrifice? I'm telling you that it can't. You might ask the question, well, why? Why would you say that? Why can't belonging exist without sacrifice? Now, my guess is you don't even need the Bible to prove this one to you, right? That if you just think about the nature of relationships for just a moment, sort of pause and back up from it, you recognize that you can't actually have any kind of relationship without having sacrifice involved in it. To be in a relationship is to volunteer for sacrifice, right? At the smallest levels and sometimes at the most profound. If you are in relationship with someone else, at some point you will not choose where you go to dinner. If you are in a relationship with someone, at some point you will not choose whether or not you're going to stay up to finish that fight that you started until 2 a.m., when you'd rather go to sleep, right? If you are in a relationship, this could be friendship, it could be romantic relationship, it could be marriage. If you're in a relationship, at some point, you are going to 
perform all these manner of sacrifices. You won't choose where you go on the vacation. You won't choose what happens on the daily schedule. You won't choose any number of things because relationships always involve sacrifice. If you don't have sacrifice, you don't have a relationship. Right? I mean, guys, if you have a wife who has been pregnant, at some point you will make the 2 a.m. run for pickles to the grocery store. That's just going to happen, right? So relationships come with sacrifice as part of their DNA. You can't avoid it. So if that's the case, then let's ask ourselves not just sort of why, okay, why belonging can't happen without sacrifice. Maybe we recognize, okay, it's just the nature of relationships. But let's dig a little deeper than just that. Let's ask ourselves, what does God's word have to say about it? So look with me at Philippians chapter two. Let's look at verses one through four and see what Paul is saying there about this very idea. Starting in verse one, Paul says to the church at Philippi, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, let's pause right there. So we read the first two verses. So what's he getting at? What Paul is saying to the Philippians, he's writing to people he knows have a relationship with Christ. So he's not saying if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any participation in the Spirit, to ask like, or to assume that maybe there is, maybe there isn't. He knows that there is. They're believers. So he's saying to them, he's assuming, but he's using the question to sort of raise a hypothetical to get them to see, because you have participated in the work of the Spirit in Christ, because you've been encouraged by the work of Christ, because that has taken place, there's something that you need to do. Now, what does he point out that that thing is in verse two, right? He says, I want you to be of one mind. I want you to be united. In other words, we might say, I want you to belong to one another. I want you to have a real sense in which you are living in relationship with each other in a really healthy way. That's what he's saying in verse one and two. So now, he's getting at this idea of belonging, community, right? Knowing one another, living alongside one another in verses one and two, saying, look, this just comes with knowing Christ. You're going to be with one another. I want that to be a healthy expression of belonging. So then the next question that's really interesting is, well, where does he go in verse three and four? If in verse one and two, he's gonna say, I want this to happen, then what's he gonna say in verse three and four about how it happens? And look what he says. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit some versions say, do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, pause again right there. So what's he just said? Verse one and two, I want you to belong. I want you to be unified in mind. I want you to belong to one another. How is that gonna happen? According to verse three and four, we might sum it up by saying you're gonna have to sacrifice for one another. Did you see it? He says you're gonna have to do that. You're gonna have to sacrifice for one another in order to have this. You're gonna have to count one another more important than yourselves. Now that's a nice turn of phrase, but when you really listen to that, do you get how hard that is? I want you to walk around and count everyone you bump into within this family of God more important than you think you are. Okay, I have not done that very often. How about you? I want you to consider their needs, their interests. I want you to count the things that they desire more important than the things that you desire. I want you to do that all the time, everywhere you go. Anytime you bump into a fellow Christian, I want you to say, I'm gonna count you more important than myself. And by the way, this isn't just limited to the household of God. He's talking about the household of God here. But I think generally we could say that Paul and, and Jesus would say, I want you to count 
all people more important than yourselves. I want you to sacrifice so that all people might come to know me and walk with me. So that's just a broad framework. Now we're gonna come back to verse three and four in a minute, okay? But I just want you to see that what Paul is saying, the general flow of the passage, right, is I want you to have belonging. In order to have belonging, you gotta have sacrifice. Count one another's interests more important than your own. You with me? Everybody got that flow? All right, so that's where he goes. Now, so why do relationships of real belonging require sacrifice? Let's just ponder this for a second. Why is that the case, right? The first is this. It's because love is only theoretical until a sacrifice is made. Love is only theoretical until a sacrifice is made. Look, you can, you can have all the warm fuzzies in the world towards a person. You can be emotionally moved by a person. You can be um, so enamored with someone. And until you lay down something you need, want, or desire so that they can have something that they need, want, or desire, you have not loved. It's love in theory until sacrifice enters the picture. That's what you need to know, friends. Too many of us are swept up with some version of love that is really just something we've seen in a movie somewhere or something we felt like we wanted to look like. And the reality is love always involves sacrifice. And until sacrifice enters the equation, you have not loved. When I was 17, 18 years old, I had a very naive, I had a 17-year-old version of love in my brain. And I remember going into my youth pastor's office and sitting down with him, and there were two pictures behind his desk. And I remember both of them to this day. You know, and if you say something to someone when they're 17 or they see it and they remember it, it must have been pretty profound, right? It's stuck. It sat behind his desk. And the first, the first was a picture of Jesus laughing. And I'm not, just, I'm not just talking about like laughing, like ha-ha, like belly laughing, like head thrown back, roaring in laughter. And the thing I always that stuck out to me about that was I think I had a pretty stern vision of Jesus in my head. This idea of this kind of very, you know, like tough taskmaster, you will serve me, I'm worthy of your love and affection, you will do it, you know. And it, it, it spoke something to me. I remember when I saw, oh, this is Jesus, like, I can just imagine he's sitting around the campfire with the disciples and just roaring with laughter over the story of the day, you know? The feeding of the 5,000, how amazed they were. And he's like, can you just imagine Jesus' reaction to that? Like, <laughs> that's not hard for me, you know? Like, where do you see what I got in store? This whole resurrection thing's about to happen. It's gonna be crazy, right? I love the idea of a Jesus who belly laughs, right? The other, the other thing was a framed definition of the word love. It's the best definition I've ever heard to this day. I've used it every time I've spoken about love, and it's this. Love is the commitment of my will to your best interests, regardless of the cost to me. Love is a commitment of my will to your best interests, regardless of the cost to me. That's a powerful definition, and a biblical definition, by the way, of what love is. And the power of that and why it stuck with me is because it reminded me that love requires what? Sacrifice. Love is only theory until sacrifice is involved. The second reason why true belonging requires sacrifice is because the pursuit of our own interests leaves our partner in relationship with no one to look out for them. You've been in a relationship like this, I guarantee you, right? You've been in that relationship where you, you want to serve the other person, but you feel like if I do, they're gonna take advantage of that and they're not gonna serve me in return and look out for my interest. And so the thing I need to do is protect myself and look out for my own interest because they're gonna do that too. So I better do that. You've been there? 
That's what I call the spiral. It is the death spiral of a relationship, the death spiral of self-protection. That's what that is. And every time each person in that relationship makes a choice to protect themselves and serve their own interests and look out for themselves, guess what the other person's gonna do? The same exact thing. And that sucker's gonna spiral down faster than you can count to 10. The opposite of that, by the way, is the upward spiral of life-giving relationship, of serving one another's interests, of sacrifice, right? Where you say, one of the greatest gifts you can give anybody in relationship is to say, I will choose to look out for your own interests ahead of my own. And when you do that, typically over time, godly people will then look to serve one another's interests. And it creates this spiral where you almost are seeking to outdo one another in service. Seeking to say, how can I lay down more of my interest to serve more of yours? How can I do that for you? And then it gets returned. And that spirals up. And it's just a beautiful and brilliant thing. And it's life-giving. But friends, here's what I want to say to you. One of the greatest gifts you can give anybody in a relationship is to choose to consider them more important than yourself and to serve their interests ahead of your own even when they don't do that in return for you. Even when they don't reciprocate. Now, the only way to do that The only way to do that is to know that you are doing it not to please that person, but to please God. Because God calls you to do it. Husbands, God calls you to serve your wives whether or not they serve you in return. Wives, God calls you to serve your husbands whether or not they serve you in return. You do it because it pleases him. You do it because it is his delight, his calling, and you delight to obey. You don't do it for them, ultimately, in an ultimate sense. You do it for them in a temporal sense. But in reality, you do it because you recognize that God calls you to that. And he is the one who will protect you. He is the one that will look over you, watch out for you. But friends, here's the other thing you need to know. When you get in that death spiral of self-protection, what's the only way out of that spiral? The only way out of that spiral is when one member of that relationship, that friendship, whatever it may be, is when one person chooses to not look out for their own interests, to not protect themselves. Even when this person might take advantage of it, they yield and refuse to do that. And hopefully, the godly response to that is for the person who is seeking their own interest to stop doing that and say, oh my goodness, I've been wrong all this time. But you will never get out of that spiral if you continue to protect yourself while the other person protects themselves. You're going to have to make a choice to trust God, to sovereignly intervene, to be in charge, and to protect you. That's the only way out of that spiral. Now, if sacrifice is necessary for belonging, if it's, if it's absolutely required, then it will be helpful for us to think through a little more specifically about what sacrifices are required, right? So we're saying generally sacrifice is required. That's what the text seems to be pointing us towards. But what specific sacrifices? And here, friends, we could talk for days, right? We could, basically every command in the Bible that that we are given about how we are to treat one another as fellow members of the body of Christ, almost every single one of them requires sacrifice in some way, shape, form, or fashion. It's kind of the broad category that all these other things fit into. Just listen to a few of them. Right? John 13, 34, 35. After Jesus washed the disciples' feet, that one of the great acts of service in the ministry of Jesus, right? He says to them in John 13, 34 and 35, love one another. Love one another. And he's measuring love by what he's just done by washing their feet and serving them. Right? How about Galatians 5:13, where he says, serve one another. Or 
Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens. In other words, when you see your brother or sister carrying a heavy load, get under that load with them. Carry it alongside them. Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 are just rich. I mean, they're just filled with different versions of how we would sacrifice for one another. In Ephesians 4, 2, bear with one another. In other words, be patient, give grace, give time. Assume the best, not the worst, right? Bear with one another. Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another. Now, is that a sacrifice? Oh, man, if you've ever been offended and you don't want to forgive, you know what a sacrifice it is to, to feel like I have to forgive. Ephesians 5.21, probably my favorite one. I shouldn't say it's my favorite. It's the hardest one, but it's, it strikes me as profound. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another. What is he saying there? Submit to one another. What Paul is saying when he's writing to the Ephesian church is he's saying, look, I want you to actually grant authority to one another uh, in your life. I want you to let other people willingly have authority to help guide and dictate the choices that you make. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he says. So in other words, you are to, like, in a life group context, submitting to one another might look like saying, Look, I'm not going to miss life group unless I get permission from the rest of the group to miss for a valid reason, right? I'm not just going to go, I need to work a little late today, so I'm going to call it and just say, I'm not going to make it tonight. No, I'm committed to being there. I will show up, and I'm going to call them and say, I think I need to work a little bit late today. Here's why. What do you think? Is that valid, or do I need to put it down and get over there, and then I'll go back to work late or whatever, and give other people voice in your life about what you do? You shouldn't just make those decisions on your own, right? Inviting other people who are living life with you, who are loving you sacrificially, to speak into your life. So submit to one another. Let's look at two that are just in this text specifically. Philippians chapter 2. In verse 3 and 4, which we already read, there are two things noted. The first is this, the sacrifice of selfish ambition. We saw it when in verse 3 it says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Some versions say, do nothing from selfish ambition. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So the term he's using there for selfish ambition is this term that is used, and they would have known exactly what he meant by it uh, in Philippi, for a politician who went after political office in order to pad his own pockets, in order to get financial gain. Right? And so they're reading this, and they know exactly. They've got a picture in their mind of this person who does this sort of a thing, who pursues selfish ambition. And so Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't go that route. Now, this raises an important question for believers. If one of the sacrifices we're supposed to make is the sacrifice of ambition, then we have to ask, well, is ambition appropriate for a Christian? Is ambition something that a, that a Christian can actually have and have it be a godly thing, a valuable thing? Like, if you've been in a career at any point, you've asked this question. You've asked yourself, like, is like pursuing advancement in my career, is that okay? Is it acceptable? I think the answer to that question is yes, but with some restrictions, okay? I don't think, here's what I find. I find when I talk to other fellow believers all the time that there is this insecurity around the idea of ambition, that to be ambitious just seems bad. But ambition itself is not bad. Selfish ambition is bad. Godly ambition is good. God delights to put people in positions of authority and power that are his people so that they might help dictate the way things go and do things that he's gifted them to do and made them to do. And to have that kind of ambition for God's kingdom and for God's glory is a good kind of ambition. Now, we are rightly wary of our own motivations, right? 
we are right, I hope, rightly aware of our own motivations when it comes to ambition, thinking to ourselves, am I really motivated by God's glory and the extension of his kingdom? Is that why I want to be in that place or in that office or in that position? Is that why I want that? Or is it really about me? Is it about my ego or making more money? Or is it, is it somehow about my advancement? And that, my friends, is what we call selfish ambition, the kind of ambition that just pursues my own vanity, my own glory. And here, Paul is saying, you cannot have that if you're going to be someone who lives within the body of Christ well and in a healthy fashion, who has a biblical version of belonging. So here's what I want to point out to you. Friends, one of the big distinctions between godly ambition and selfish ambition, right? Um, actually, let me not go there first. Let me say this. Okay, we may be, we may be a little insecure around this idea of ambition, because of our, we're wary of our own motives, right? But the thing we need to know, the thing we need to know is that there will always be, in spite of the fact that I think God delights to put us in positions of authority at points, there is also the reality that there will, there will be limitations to the heights to which we can rise often, and those limitations will be brought about because of the reality that it would require immoral or unfaithful choices to be able to rise to those heights, so it's possible, it's possible that we would find ourselves in a place where if we would do certain things, cut certain corners, take certain approaches, that we could continue to advance. And the marker, the difference between selfish ambition and godly ambition is what we do in those moments. That is the measure of whether our ambition is for God and his glory and his kingdom and any advancement he would bring to us is brought about for those purposes or whether it is really about us. What you do in the moment when you have to choose whether you will cut the corner, make the choice that lacks integrity, or whether you will choose to continue to operate in integrity. That's an important moment, and you will come to it. That moment will come for you, and you must be ready for it. You must be ready. Here's the thing that godly ambition knows. You ready? God is able to place you in any position he desires for you. You do not need to cut the corners in order to get there. God is able to place you where he wants you. When I was younger, I had a well-meaning friend who gave me some advice. I was, I was wanting uh, to be invited to have a voice at this specific table in an organization I was a part of. And I felt I had deserved it. I felt I had earned it. And I felt I had some wisdom to offer at that table, that my voice might be valuable at that table. Uh, and I was not being invited to come and have a seat at that table. Uh, some of you may have encountered something like this. And so I was pondering what to do about that. I was talking to the Lord about it. And in talking to a friend who's, who is a, a wise friend, but on, in, on this occasion, um, we had an interesting interaction. His advice to me was, you need to go let those people know that you belong at that table. You need to ask for a seat at that table. You need to go to them and say, I think I could help. Can I please have a seat at that table? And I... I took that advice and I pondered, I thought about it and I went home and prayed and, and as clear as clear can be, God said to me, you keep your mouth shut. God's not always that clear with me. He must've known I was really dumb and needed some super clarity on this one because he, he said, you keep your mouth shut. I am able to put you at any table I want you at. And you wait, and you trust me, 
Now, I can tell you a lot of stories about times where I didn't do very well in response to that instruction, but by the grace of God, this time I did. I, I, I kept my mouth shut and I waited. What was so interesting is to watch how that bread a number of things in my own life, in my own heart that I think were incredibly valued, but also it helped the organization I was a part of. It changed some things uh, that probably needed to be shifted around. And what, was, what is so interesting, I think, is when we promote ourselves and look to say, you, I, need to, I need to be there, give me that, the markers of that are usually the markers of selfish ambition, not of godly ambition. Now, second sacrifice that he talks about here. The second sacrifice is in verse four. So if he just said, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, what he's saying is if you want to have biblical, robust, belonging, community, then you're gonna have to lay down personal desires. That's the second one. Not just selfish ambition has to be laid down, but personal desires have to be laid down you are going to have to, time and time again, die a thousand deaths. This is the call to biblical community. It's the call to die a thousand deaths. Just over and over and over again to say, I want this, but this is what's more needed for my community. I will, I will then do this. Just over and over and over again, lay down personal desires. Now, let me give you a word of warning on this one because it's a simple concept, right? It's hard to do, not real complex to understand, but what will happen is, you, is I have found this to be true, and I bet you will too, is over time, you might begin to make some sacrifices. You might begin to actually lay down some desires that you have so that others can have their desires. And that's a good thing. But watch out for this, because after you do that for a little while, a lot of times what happens is you start to ask the question, you know, I've been sacrificing a lot for people. Who's sacrificing for me? Now, I've, I've laid down this, and I've laid down that, and I've, I've laid down this preference, and I've done this differently. I laid down all these things. I made all these sacrifices. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of looking around and I'm recognizing no one is really sacrificing for me. What's going on with that? Friends, let me just warn you, there's a good chance that's going to happen. And you've got to push those thoughts back. You've got to push against those because those, those are dangerous thoughts. They're not godly thoughts. When we begin to ask ourselves the question of where is the sacrifice being done for me, we are indicating a couple things. We're indicating, one, that our pleasure is not in knowing God through the sacrifice which we are partaking of, and not only that, but also that we are doing it to get reciprocation, that we're really ultimately laying down our desires so that someone would lay down theirs for us. You cannot do that. You've got to push against it. It's a dangerous place to be. And I just wanna, I, I find it myself, and as I was thinking about it this week, I just thought, I bet some others will find it in them. So be warned against asking where others are sacrificing for me. Now, the last question we wanna tackle today is this. How can I choose to sacrifice? All right, so we've said it's necessary to have belonging, right? We've given some specific examples of how you, might be, how you need to sacrifice in order to have belonging. But the, the third question probably should be, well, how do I do that? Like, how do I actually begin to lay down my desires? How do I actually begin to choose godly ambition, not selfish ambition? How do I actually do that? And the answer is in the rest of Philippians chapter two, but I wanna actually walk you through a number of different scriptures because here's the reality. The only way, our only hope of choosing to make these kinds of sacrifices is to see the beauty of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We've got to begin to live life with a cross-centered viewpoint wherein we are saying the, the cross is the ultimate act of sacrifice in all of human history. 
And as believers, it is the ultimate act in our lives. It is the thing that has reconciled us to God the Father. And because that's the case, we must begin to become so people who so treasure the act of the cross that we begin to measure our lives by how much they align with that kind of sacrifice. We begin to ask ourselves, does my life bear the marks of the cross? And we begin to look at it and not disdain it as this act of sacrifice, which is really hard to look at, but we begin to treasure it. We begin to long to have our lives look more like Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And friends, we could talk about the cross for days and weeks and we would only begin to scratch the surface of what took place at Calvary. I wanna give you a few. I'm gonna show you. Now, let me recommend a good book to you, actually. I brought it up here. I wanted to show it to you. Uh, This is by John Piper. It's called The Passion of Jesus Christ. As we enter the Easter season here coming up, I'd highly recommend it. It's not expensive. You could pick it up on Amazon or any other bookseller, right? And um, it is 50 Reasons Why Christ Came to Die. And if you want to begin a journey of pondering and treasuring the cross, this is a great place to start. Some of what I'll share with you comes from this. Others are just directly from other texts that I wanted to point out to you. But let me, let me just see if we can't saturate our thinking with the cross of Jesus now and, and consider what a profound act it is. So, see how Paul points us to the cross. Look at what he does in verse five now and six. Let me read five. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And just follow what he's just said, verses one and two. You need to be of one mind. You need to belong to one another. Verses three and four, the only way for that to happen is to sacrifice for one another. Verses five and following. How is that gonna take place? Let me show you how it takes place by pointing you to the cross of Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice that's ever been made in all of human history. And as you begin to treasure that and ponder it, you will begin to understand how to sacrifice in your own lives. You guys follow the flow of that? So let's consider it for a second. In verse two, in, uh, in chapter two, verse six, oh, another way to translate this would be this. He says, who though he was in the form of God, that, idea, that word form is not like he kind of looked like God, it's that he bore the nature of God. That's the best way to think about that. So the, although, although he was in the nature of God, he did not consider that nature something to be used for his own advantage. That's what verse six is saying. He did not consider something to be used for his own advantage. So the first thing we see is at the cross, the one who had all authority spent it for the good of those who had squandered their authority in selfish pursuits. You see, all of humankind was given the authority of bearing the nature of God, the pinnacle of all creation. And we squandered that authority by using it for our own self-interest and our own pursuits. And at the cross, the one who rightly holds all authority and gifted us with authority, which we squandered, used that cross to declare to us, here's the right use of authority. I will lay down my authority so that you might have life. Or how about this in verse 7? 
at the cross, the one who was unspeakably great became unspeakably low. Verse seven says, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. For the one who is uncreated and eternal to take on a finite existence and submit himself to death is a great sacrifice. At the cross, the one who was unspeakably great became unspeakably low. At the cross, the one who gives all things life submitted himself to death, Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You might wonder why Paul makes the point of saying even death on a cross, because he's pointing out that it's a particularly horrendous kind of death. He didn't just submit himself to death generally. He submitted himself to the worst form of death that mankind knew at that point. He committed himself to suffer and to torture. He committed himself to mockery, to bleeding, to great agony as a demonstration of the sacrifice that was required to pay the penalty for your sins and for my sins. At the cross, the one who gives all things life. Think of it. The breath you breathe right now in this moment, you breathe because it is dictated so by Jesus. He gave you life. Anything that breathes, breathes because Jesus gave that thing life. He owns life. That one submitted himself to death. Those are just in Philippians 2. Let's look beyond that. At the cross, the Father willed the death of the Son. Ponder that for a moment. Isaiah 53, 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The ultimate answer to the question, who crucified Jesus? Right, The lower answer is, I did with my sin. The lower answer is, the Roman court did. The higher answer God the Father crucified the Son because he treasured what would be accomplished through that sacrifice. And the Son said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. And Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy set before him. There was something to be done, and at the cross, he delighted to have it done. He was so overjoyed to redeem and reconcile a people for his own glory that he dictated the cross was worth the price. At the cross, the Father willed the death of the Son so that you and I might be redeemed. At the cross, the one who deserved no suffering suffered more than anyone ever has or will. 1 Peter 2, 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In other words, he is the only innocent one, the only one who should have never endured any form of suffering, endured greater suffering than anyone in all humankind has known. At the cross, the one who judges perfectly became the victim of the greatest injustice ever perpetrated. There has never been an act of injustice like the act of injustice of putting the Son of God on a cross. Wicked human judges decided to crucify the Son of God 
It's a massive injustice. And the one they are crucifying is the only one with the authority, power, and wisdom to judge every situation throughout all humankind perfectly, always. 1 Peter 2, 23 says it this way. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. At the cross, the one who can bring people into perfect friendship with God was left utterly alone. Matthew 26, 56, telling the story of his crucifixion, makes this point in just a few words. All the disciples left him and fled. At the cross, the devil is destroyed. Listen to Hebrews 2, 14, how good this is. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, talking about us, that we have flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In other words, the cross is the final word on Satan's eternal future. At the cross, the devil is destroyed. At the cross, the one who was perfectly righteous became sin so that those who are perfectly sinful can become righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, the one who was the object of the Father's perfect love absorbed his wrath towards sin. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means wrath-bearing object. The one whom the father loved perfectly and who was worthy of his perfect affection became the object of his wrath at the cross. At the cross, God's love was proved definitively and finally. Romans 5, 7, and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At the cross, Jesus has proved definitively once and for all with finality that you are loved by God. You never have to ask it again. It is never up for debate it's not a question that we have to ponder in great detail. Am I loved by you? We don't have to pull the petals off the daisy and say, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. The answer is he loves you. And it has been declared and with final authority by the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, God has proved, proved definitively that he loves you. So friends, ponder the cross. Meditate upon the cross. Saturate your thinking with the cross. If you want to become a man, a woman who can sacrifice, consider others more important than yourselves so that you might experience the kind of belonging that the church is meant to have with one another. If you want that, you will have to sacrifice. And if you're going to sacrifice, you will have to love and treasure the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you caught it when I read it, but perhaps some of you might be thinking to yourself, look, I'm... I'm not a Christian, and I have made sacrifices without ever pondering or considering the cross. 
And I would say, you're absolutely right. I have seen many people who are not followers of Jesus make remarkable sacrifices. There's no doubt about that. But I might offer this thought in response to that question. Here's what I find to be true for me. When my sacrifices are not motivated by the cross, there is a limit to how far I will go in that sacrifice. And I'm not sure how you can sacrifice without becoming proud. Don't you find that in yourselves? Christians, non-Christians, all of us. We find ourselves becoming proud of the sacrifices we've made. And the prouder you become, the less willing you'll be to sacrifice over the long haul. The only way for us to truly sacrifice in the qualitatively important way that God desires for us to do it is to make those sacrifices because we have a cross-centered vision of life, because we have treasured the cross. Now, here's the great thing. You might think, that's great, right? Verse 5. I read past it. I don't know if you caught it. It's the crux of the whole thing. Because in verse 5, he says this. Have this mind in you, which is in Christ Jesus. You think, okay, great. That's the command. Have that mind, right? Have that mind that Christ has. Then he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus? Whoa. What did he just say? The thing you need to make these sacrifices, the mind of Christ, to see life through that lens. When you've come to Christ, that mind has been given to you. Now it's about learning to connect your thinking to that mind, right? Don't be of two minds anymore. Don't connect your thinking. Don't run off the wrong battery. Don't run off the dead battery. Connect to the live battery. Connect your thinking, your ways, your actions to the truth of the cross. The mind of Christ has been gifted to you according to this which means the power you need to see life through the cross and then make the sacrifices that come as a result of that is given to you. That mind is given to you. So friends, I think we need to sing about the cross. Can we sing about the cross? Let's do that. Why don't you stand with me? My friends who lead us will come up and join us. Let me pray as you're standing. Oh, Father, give us a cross-centered vision of our lives. Forgive us. Forgive us for all the times that we fail to count others more important than ourselves, for all the times that we fail to, to set our gaze upon you and live our lives with a deep value for sacrifice, that we would see the treasure that you are. Give us a deeper understanding of your cross. Plant it deep within us. Use song Use your word. Use everything at your disposal to cause us to see and treasure the cross of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name.